we're fluent in a language, it means that that language just comes naturally to us. And it comes, comes out of our mouths without thought. Uh, if you think of your, your first language, whether that's, that's English or, or French or something else, your, your, the, the first language you learned, you typically no longer have to put a conscious effort in to consider how do you piece words together in sentences and sentences into paragraphs and paragraphs into conversation. And you know, it just comes, right? It just, it just flows language because you're fluent in it. No longer after you understand a language and, and, and become uh, fluent, you're, you're not processing the grammatical rules of, okay, what, what verb tense am I using? It, it just flows. And so as we've been working our way through the series, the desire has been each week that we would grow in gospel fluency, that we would we'd get some practice speaking the language or speaking the truths of Jesus into our everyday stuff of life, that it would just start to, it would come naturally or without thought, that the gospel would flow out of our mouths as we speak. And the goal of this, the goal of gospel fluency is unity. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul prays for the church or says to the church, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this unity, this this gospel fluency that we are striving for is to mold and shape us to be like Christ. That's the goal. That's the definition of maturity in in a Christian sense, is to be like Jesus. And so a couple verses later than that, in Ephesians 4, 15, uh, Paul uh, exhorts us to speak the truth in love. We want to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Jesus from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint uh, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the point. We want to be able to speak the gospel so that we can become like Jesus and as a body, as the church, grow healthily and look like Him and represent Him well to the world. And so we considered the following week, we continued and and said that, listen, every one of us is living under a dominant story. That is, there's something or someone that is most important to us, and it defines the lives that we're living. This can be your career. If your career is the most important thing, you make decisions to further that, to base uh, on that uh, growing. This can be a life stage, can be the most important thing, whether it's, well, I'm just a student, I'm on a gap year, baby, I'm doing whatever I want, uh, I, I've got parent, I'm, I'm a parent, so that can change it. Retirement as a life stage, that can be the single most defining thing in our lives. It can be a relationship or the desire for a relationship. Someone after the first service said, hey, do you have any cute Christian boys that you can introduce me to here? And I said, well, there's... Some, I guess, right? Like, but that, that, that's, that can be a thing. It can be our spouse can be the most important thing in our lives, and, and everything revolves around them. It can be friends or our parents or our kids. Any number of things, good things so often as well. But that thing that we give the most emphasis in our lives to, it, it shapes our decisions, it shapes our actions, it shapes our relationships, it shapes our meaning, our purpose, our value, our identities. See, because we are defined by the story that we're living under. 
That story, that, that thing that's most important, again, gives us our, our meaning, our value, our identity, and our purpose. And so we considered a few different stories that we could be living under. I mentioned some of the things just now. But then we focused on the gospel, the story of God in the Bible, and how it is the better story. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's a good story. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel is the righteousness of God. It's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We spoke that week about how the gospel impacts our past. We have, because of the work of Jesus, we have salvation. We have redemption. God has has rescued us from our sins. We spoke about how the gospel impacts our present. We live by faith. We rest in the work of Jesus that's still working in and through us. And it impacts our future because we have this hope in something to come. This eternal life in the kingdom of God. And we walked through that week the story of God in four parts. We said that every worldview is trying to answer four main questions. Where did we come from? What's the problem? How do we fix it? And what's the new reality because we fixed that problem? We said the story of God is that, you know, in in creation, God spoke everything into creation. and, And God spoke us into creation. And that's where we get our identity from, as image bearers. We are created in the image and likeness of God. The problem is, is the fall, that sin entered the world, rebellion against God, unbelief in God's word and his work. Then we find redemption in Jesus and him alone as our true savior. And because of Jesus, we now have restoration. Our new reality is this new hope that we have in him. The next week we asked, what do you love? And if you've grown up in and around church, you know the answer should be Jesus. When we evaluate how we spend our time, our talents, our money, where our mind goes when we're not focused on something, what we talk about, we ask, what do those things reveal about your heart and what you love? If you recall that week, we looked at Jesus' interaction in Mark chapter 10 with the rich young man who came to Jesus and he was asking, again, he was asking a lot of really good questions. Good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get the kingdom of God? How do I relate rightly to God? And they had this discussion, Jesus and this man, and, and Jesus put his thumb on the thing that he loved, didn't he? He said, here's the thing you lack. Go and sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor and follow me. Because your stuff is defining you, he was basically saying. And the man went away disheartened and sorrowful. He chose his stuff over Jesus on that day. And so from there, the challenge for us, perhaps especially in a place like Canmore where there are so many things to love. I mean, look out the windows, right? Is we've got to consider what is it that we love? What do we invest our one and only lives in? Because our actions, our decisions, our lives are ultimately an overflow of what we love, of what's in our hearts. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We carried on and we looked at the voices that we're letting speak to us as well. Whether it's the voice of culture telling us how we should do life and relate to one another and and how we are given our purpose or whatever. Uh, We considered whether we're listening to the voice of false teachers who seem to be teaching maybe a gospel sort of, but not the true gospel. Or even the voices that are in our head that tell us things. And we recognize that we are in a spiritual battle and we need to to take every thought captive and to measure our thoughts, our emotions, our, our decisions against what Jesus has taught us in the Bible to make sure we're actually believing the truth, God's truth. 
And all the while, I hope that you've heard throughout this whole series that we have been pointing to Jesus as the one who is the true and better than all the alternatives the world presents to us. And last week we brought it, we brought it really home and simple to the gospel around the table and, and communion and said Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. And we said Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the center of the center of what Christianity is. That God sent his son to redeem and rescue the world from slavery to sin and bring us into the, co- the kingdom. Almost everything else is a secondary issue. But God sent his son to redeem us and rescue us from slavery uh, to bring us into his kingdom. And in each part of the series, I, I hope as well that you've heard that we have tried to emphasize the need for community. That we weren't meant to have a faith that's just between us and God. We need people around us. And not just right now as you look around the room, there are people around us, but we need people who are living close enough to us, who are close enough to our lives, who can see those areas of unbelief in our lives. Where, we, where we're saying that we trust Jesus, but ultimately we're putting our hope in something else. Maybe we say, Jesus, I trust you for everything, but I just have to work a little bit harder so I can make a little bit more money so that, that, that I've got that security in that stuff. Or whatever it might be, right? We need people with us to show us where we're trusting in something other than God for our meaning, our value, our purpose, and identity. And we need people around us to remind us of the gospel story. We need people to help us learn the language of the gospel so that it becomes second nature to us. Jeff Vanderstel, who's a pastor in the States who, who wrote the book Gospel Fluency and whose kind of organization has put a bunch of the stuff that we've been working through here, says this. That growth in gospel fluency, growth in maturity in the gospel, you could say, requires regularly being with others who know and love Jesus, who speak about him often, and who commit together to regularly remind one another of the gospel when they forget. We need community. And we get a picture of what this looks like right early in the beginning of the early church. So if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open up to Acts chapter 2 whether it's in the paper or on your phone or iPad or whatever else, we'll open up there. Just a, a quick lesson. Our Bible is divided into two parts, uh, Old and New Testaments. And the Old Testament was everything that happened leading up to and pointing to Jesus' birth. And then the New Testament starts with these four Gospels, these four biographies of Jesus that talk about his, his birth, His life, and His work. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we come to this book, Acts, the fifth book in the New Testament, which tells about the birth of the church and how it went from this, this, these few disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem and spread across the entire known world at the time. And so we're going to jump into Acts chapter 2, uh, but just before we do, a couple of notes of how this church was born and what's happened leading up to the verses we'll sort of parachute into. If we go back to Acts 1, we see Jesus has, has been raised from the dead. He's with his disciples. He's teaching them again, and he's, he's promised his disciples the Holy Spirit. And he's told them that this ragtag group of about 11 simple, ordinary people, fishermen, a tax collector, like, this gives me great hope. These were not well-educated. These were not great people. These were just... Ordinary Joes were going to take the message of Jesus, not just to a few friends, but you remember where they're going to go in Acts 1.8? To the ends of the earth. That's a great calling. That's a huge calling. And he says that the Holy Spirit will come and you'll take my message, not just to the city, not just to the province, not just to the country, but to the ends of the earth. 
And then earlier on in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit arrive, and Jesus' disciples uh, experience this moment, this this rushing of of, of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and they begin speaking to one another, and they begin speaking in language that they don't know, but people are hearing them speak in other language, which is really a brilliant thing. And, And I was reminded of uh, a, a number of years ago now, I was on a, a trip to Mexico, a kind of mission trip, an outreach trip to Mexico, and I, we, we had been reading through the book of Acts as a, as, a, as a team going down, and I remembered Acts 2, how, you know, God let these, these guys speak, but they heard it in their own language, and I was like, God, that'd be awesome, right? Like, I, I don't know Spanish, we're in a church service, this would be awesome if I could hear them speak English or whatever, right? And so not to like test God or whatever, but I was, I was just, I was just saying, God, what's happening? And I like honest seconds after that thought process prayer went through my mind, the band jumped into a song that was no longer just a, like a, a Spanish or a Mexican worship song, but was one I knew exactly from home and I could sing along with. Now they were still speaking Spanish, but I knew every word, right? So that's like, God can do incredible things. That's a bit of a tangent. But it's a good tangent, right? God can do good things. So then after this moment, all this sort of chaos is happening in Jerusalem where people from all over the world are hearing these fishermen speak in their language and Peter steps up and preaches his first sermon. And he goes through the story of the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Scriptures, and he he picks out Scriptures all the way through that point to Jesus and say, this was the long-awaited Messiah. You missed it. You actually killed him. But this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one that God promised us centuries and centuries ago. And he was here. And what do we hear... What do we read happened? His listeners were cut to the heart, and 3,000 were baptized that day. That's a good preach right there. As one writer noted, God builds his church by his word. And just as God in the beginning of Genesis spoke creation into existence, he speaks this new creation, this new community into existence through his mighty word. That's what Peter did. He preached the word. So the church is God's plan. It's bigger than the random conversion of a few individuals. Christianity is personal but not individualistic. It's corporate. Jesus is saving a people for himself. And that fact is made plain here in Acts 2. But it's also been emphasized in Acts 1 as the people are gathered together. And this communal nature, this, this need for community of the church is reiterated throughout the New Testament and is also illustrated by the fact that all the letters that follow the book of Acts were written not to just to a single person, but to churches or in reference to churches. And then we get to our verses this morning where we get this sort of this inside look of what, what this early church looked like. So let me read Acts 2, starting at verse 42. I'll read down to 47. These new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I love this part. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
There are several things mentioned in these five or so verses that we could point to and, and talk about what the church is. This is this is the community of disciples. These are people who are who are learning to be like Jesus, but they were devoted to one another. So let's pull out a couple things that, that we see emphasized of what it means to be devoted followers of Jesus here. First thing, they pursued God and his word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Acts 2, 42 tells us. Now they wouldn't have had a Bible like we do today. They would have, had, they would have known their Old Testament scriptures. This wasn't something that, that anybody would have been carrying around with them except the, the very wealthy. But as we read Acts, we're told that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. But as we read Acts 2, we see the word of God was something that informed everything else. We have several recorded sermons in the book of Acts. From, and, and when people preached, whether it was Peter here, or later, or Paul, or Philip, or Stephen, or whoever else, they taught Jesus from the Old Testament, from the Scriptures. And so the message for us is that we too ought to trust God and His Word to teach us and train us and show us how to become more like Jesus. The second thing is also in verse 42 that they pursued fellowship. Now fellowship is a word that you probably never hear except for inside the four walls of a church. So maybe let me try and define it a little bit. Uh, it's, it's not friendship, but it's nothing less than friendship. It's not just community, but it's not less than community. But it's this sort of commonality that people have, this, this united around something. And I would suggest fellowship is being united around uh, Jesus, the, His Word, God's Word and work, and, and going deeper than just friendship, right? Having, a, having just not a, not, a, not a surface level relationship, but, but actually spurring one another, one another on towards love and good deeds. These guys were united spiritually as believers, and they pursued fellowship, community with one another. Now, all through the New Testament, there are several, dozens of one another passages that describe the devotion the early church had to community. And these, things, these are things that we can and, and probably should continue to pray for in our churches. Let me just hit a couple highlights in John thirteen thirty four, Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. In Romans 12, Paul gives a whole bunch of these one another statements. He says, you know, you are, you are one body. You're individually members of one another because of your relationship to Jesus. He says, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Instruct one another. In Galatians, he writes that we ought to serve one another through love and and carry one another's burdens. In Ephesians, uh, bear with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another out of fear or reverence for Christ. In Philippians, in humility, consider others as uh, as more important than yourselves. Don't lie to one another. Encourage one another. Pursue what is good for one another. Don't criticize one another. Don't complain about one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so they may be healed. Be hospitable to one another. Clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. And John, in 1 John, writes, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us. They devoted themselves to the community, to one another. 
Next, they, they prayed together. And this is something I need to work on, spending more time praying together. I think I'm, I'm, I'm growing in my ability to, to, to pray without ceasing, to, to wake up in the morning and, and, and often ask God, okay, what are we up to today? To offer those little prayers of gratitude of, God, thanks for the sunshine and not the snow today. God, thanks for the flowers that are blooming. They just look great. Thanks for the opportunity to do this and that or meet with this person. We do this well, I think, often before meals or in our services or in times of crisis. I think when crisis hits, we often get really good at praying, don't we? Let me suggest, I think we need to make this more of a regular part of my time and our time with fellow believers. Why not when I meet someone for coffee, don't we just pray for one another as we go? One writer says, throughout the book of Acts, we find illustrations of the church's vibrant prayer life in chapters 4 and 12 and 13, among other places. He reminds us that the apostles were seriously devoted to prayer in chapter 6. That the church practiced both free and formal times of prayer. That believers prayed together corporately. That they prayed without ceasing. They prayed in the temple. They prayed in homes as they walked along the road, as they encountered the sick and afflicted. Before they preached sermons, as they heard sermons, while they were being persecuted. They prayed in planned times of intense intercession over a particular situation. They prayed as they offered thanks for their food, as they gave thanks to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. As they praised God in song, as they offered up petitions for the Father to meet their daily needs. And they remind us that a healthy church is a praying church. A couple verses down, starting in verse 44, we see that they sacrificed for one another. We read that they, they had all these uh, many things in common, and, and some were actually selling possessions and distributing the proceeds. The early church here models devotion to one another here through radical generosity. Tony Marita, a pastor and commentator, tells us this, that the church gives freely, voluntarily, sacrificially, and generously to the work of God's kingdom because Jesus has changed their hearts and they want to invest in what he's doing in the world. That's a great reason. The church knew their Savior gave them the the pattern and the power of generosity and that the best and most sustainable model for, a gener- for generous giving is a deep understanding of the appreciation of grace. I love how he puts that. These guys were generous, not because they were forced into it by some political system or whatever else, but they were generous because they recognized that God was doing something and they wanted to be a part of it. It's beautiful. The last thing we'll look on here, looking down at verse 46, is that the, the new believers, the church, they were on mission together. Verse 46 tells us that they attended the temple or, or they were in the temple courts. And, and this is something that maybe hadn't clicked in my head before this week, but when they went to the temple, this wasn't the Christian church. Sure, the believers gathered there and they probably met together because it was a big space and maybe they worshiped together there, but they were at the Jewish temple where their Jewish friends would have been. So they were so... Uh, emboldened and and so passionate about this message of Jesus, they knew they needed to share it with as many people as possible. So they just didn't gather in buildings with the cross on the outdoor where it was safe and Christian, but they went where their friends were. We can learn from that. And they focused on Jesus and sharing him with as many as they could. And look again at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number, not once in a while, not occasionally when the preacher called people forward. Not when there is a special baptism service up at Quarry Lake. Day by day, those who were being saved. 
That's, that's a prayer item right there. That the Lord would add to our number day by day. And we don't ask for numbers to make ourselves look good or for me to boost my ego that is, the room is packed again and this is amazing. But we pray that the Lord would add to our numbers day by day because we want His kingdom to come. We believe in the gospel. We believe it is the hope of the world. Last night, we, we gathered as, as a, we have a Saturday night service as well. Uh, there were about 15 of us or so in the same room, same number of chairs. And we looked around and we said, friends, there are a couple empty chairs in this room. There's about 100 or so set up. We said, let's pray for the empty chairs. Let's pray that the Lord would add to our numbers day by day. Again, not so that we can, we can have this thing and we can feel really great about what we are doing, but because the gospel is the hope of the world. January 13th, we started, January 13th, we started a second service, 9, 15, and 11, so that we would have empty chairs. Pray for the empty chairs that the Lord would add to our numbers day by day. Again, not so that we look good, not so that we can meet budget, not so that we can do anything else other than make God's name great. Pray for the empty chairs. There's a, a pastor that has shaped my thinking who, who posted a, a picture the other day that said, if your goals don't require prayer, your goals aren't big enough. I would love to have a 915, an 11, a 1, a 3, a 5, a 7. If that's what it takes to make sure there's still some empty chairs, I'll have to invest in more coffee and maybe Red Bull at that point or something. <laughs> But if that's what it takes to build the kingdom, because the Lord is adding to our numbers day by day, I'm in. Any other volunteers? Couple? (laughs) Okay. Better get on with finding a bigger room then, I guess. There's a ton of other things that we could mention from this example of the early church to us. We could look at how how awe and wonder abounded from verse 43. We could talk about how they shared meals together in verse 42 and 46. And we, we did that a little bit last week as we looked at the Lord's Supper. But in all these things, consider the motivation for them coming together and the motivation for this intense level of devotion. Again, what did they gather around? Jesus. That's the unifying factor here. That they would grow in gospel fluency and gospel maturity and that they would look more like Jesus. And I would suggest there is no other more unifying factor on the face of the planet than the gospel. You can travel to any country that has a church or has hidden Christians hiding and gathering together and you can step in there and immediately your family. And if you're visiting with us, I hope you notice that here too. That in Christ we are unified around this thing. It is the greatest unifying factor on the planet, even more than the Raptors winning the NBA championship, because all of a sudden this week, everybody's a Toronto Raptor fan, right? But Jesus is the core. And so the challenge for us, when we get together like this, when we get together in other ways in the other 147, 167 hours of the week, is that we too would be similarly and supernaturally devoted to Jesus. And when we gather together, as we regularly gather with others who know and love Jesus, who speak about Him often, and who commit to regularly remind one another of the gospel when we forget it, we will move from knowing just stuff about the Bible and being biblically fluent to being gospel fluent. 
And as we, we move to that gospel fluency to, to, to be growing in Christ and be able to speak the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life, we will be able to look for him in our Bible. We'll see him popping up everywhere in the Old Testament. And as we devote ourselves to one another and to unity in Christ, we also have to start right where verse 42 started. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the God's word, to the Bible. We need to make it a goal to read our Bible more. Whatever you're at today, the goal is more. Read it cover to cover so that we can, we can track with the story. We can see God's overarching story that has been written from Genesis to Revelation. It's easy to pick out our favorite verses, our favorite books, and kind of hone in on those and stay there. But we need to read the whole thing and look at it together so that more and more we'll see that every story whispers Jesus' name. Vanderstelt says the Bible is not just a recounting of the story as it occurred, but the Bible tells the story in such a way to create an anticipation, a longing for a better person, for a better solution, for a better fulfillment, for a better Savior. And so as we devote devote ourselves to one another and to God's Word, we'll start seeing Jesus being hinted at in the Scripture or, or prefigured in anticipation of His coming. As we look for this and we begin to see it in communities showing up, this will help us in our own gospel fluency because we will be able to see how the temptations and desires of this life can only be filled by Jesus. As we head towards a close, a couple examples here. First, uh, again, from Jeff Vanishel in his book, uh, Gospel Fluency, teaches us this way. Right from the beginning, Adam is a type of Christ in that he was the first human given authority over the world on behalf of God. Then from Adam's sleeping body, there came into existence a bride who was called to rule with him. His hour of temptation happened in a garden, yet he failed to overcome the temptation and sinned. And so we have a type. We see right from the beginning this this longing for a better Adam. We'll flip ahead to the Gospels and we see Jesus as the firstborn of the new creation who overcame the temptation of the garden at the beginning of, his, of the devil, excuse me, at the beginning of his ministry, who showed his power over sin and Satan in his ministry, and then in his own garden experience, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he submitted himself to God to drink the cup of suffering on the cross for the sins of Adam and his offspring. As a result, Jesus went to sleep, he died. And he was laid to rest in a tomb only to be raised on the third day. And out of Jesus' rest, it was through that that the body of the church was brought into existence, his bride. And now he is the head of the church, the new humanity, instead of sinful Adam. And so in every story throughout the biblical narrative, we can look and we can see Jesus being hinted at. Tim Keller's done a great job in, in, in one of his talks of, of pulling this together and giving us a really concise example. Uh, he, there's about 10 examples there. I'm going to go through them really fast. I've printed them here. You can come grab one after the service so you can look and kind of dig into how these uh, specifically Old Testament characters are pointing us to Jesus. Let me run through them. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam. Because Jesus passed the test in the garden. Even though his garden is a much tougher garden, his obedience is now credited to us. Jesus is a true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, his blood cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is a true and better Abraham, who answers the call of God, who leaves all the familiar comforts of the world to go into the void, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who, not only offered, who was not only offered by his father on the mount, but who was truly sacrificed for us all. 
And while God said to Abraham, Now I know you truly love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Now we can go to the foot of the cross and say to God, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blows of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and, and discipline us. Jesus is a true and better Joseph who's at the right hand of the king and he forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. He's the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people of the Lord and and mediates the new covenant. He's a true and better rock of Moses who was struck with the rod of God's justice and now gives us water in the desert. He's the true and better Job, who was, uh, Jesus was the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes the people's victory, even though they didn't lift a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost ultimately the heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't say, if I perish, I perish, but rather said, when I perish, I will perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that you and I can be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. You can see every story whispers his name. He's there. And this is why we need community, so that we can grow with one another by speaking the truth, speaking the gospel to one another in love, into the areas of unbelief in our lives. So that when we're tempted to exchange God's story for another story, our community draws us back. So let me give you, we'll call it homework. Summer's coming. I know nobody wants summer homework, right? I'm going to give you homework anyways. Find community. Ask someone to get together in the next 167 hours before we gather here again. Find a Bible plan to read together. Challenge one another. Where do you see God speaking through here? Where is where's Jesus in this text? And then pray together. Does that sound alright? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that uh, these, these words that we have recorded from 2,000 years ago are, are just as, as powerful, just as relevant, just as, 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 as teaching and instructing for us today as they were then. I pray, God, that you would continue to speak to us through your word. Give us a, a passion and a devotion to your word. Jesus, thank you that you are better. Thank you that you are the better. Thank you that you're the better Adam, the better Noah, the better Abraham, the better Moses. Thank you that you're the better ark, the better manna in the desert, the better water, the better wine. Thank you that you're the better temple, the better priest, the better sacrifice. Thank you that you did better than anyone or anything. Thank you that you are doing better than anyone or anything. And thank you that you will continue to do better than anyone or anything can and will for us. Help us to look only to you for all that we need. Help us, Jesus, to be devoted to you, your word, and one another. And help us to remind one another of your truths. 
And we pray all these things in your good name. Amen.